Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome back to Fat Chicks on Top. You are here with your host, Auntie Vice, and it's great to be back with you all today. I'm super excited. I have Chrissy King on the show today. She is a writer, been a uh, big voice for body inclusion, body liberation in the wellness space. And I just finished her new book, which is coming out in about a week from the date this episode is released. It's phenomenal. I've already told like all of my family to order it. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. And thank you for the introduction. That makes me so happy. <laughs> it, is, it was a fantastic read. I, I really loved it. And we'll get into it. But my first question is, how did you celebrate when you were finally finished writing the book? Oh, my goodness. I feel like the first draft, I honestly, I remember, I think I was thinking I was going to do something big, but I was really tired after the first draft. So my first thing was I turned it in. I asked my editor to please not contact me for two weeks. I don't care if it was the best thing she read or the worst thing she read. And honestly, I just like took it. I just like did nothing. I just needed a break to like decompress. I like watched TV. I took long naps. I just, I really just relaxed. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. So you've written a ton of stuff. You've written for all sorts of magazines and online publications and your own site. What finally got you over the hump and said, I am actually going to sit down and write a full length book? Well, here's the thing. I always knew that at some point, I shouldn't say I always knew, but like in the last few years, I knew that I wanted to write a book at some point. I really didn't have any solid plan for when it happened. I was just like, oh, it's going to happen one day. We'll just, we'll just see what happens. And, you know, you spoke about, I was writing for a multitude of platforms. One of those platforms was Shape. And I had written an article for Shape Magazine, which I thought was a cool article. It was entitled, What's It Like to Be a Black Body Positive Fitness Trainer? And I got to interview some people in the industry and it was really cool. I thought it was a good article, but like for whatever reason, it just, that that article kind of took off and went viral, which I wasn't expected. And then the Today Show reached out. And asked me to come on and talk about the book. And I was like, oh, I mean, about the article. And I was like, okay, cool. I'd love to do that. So I did that. It was via Zoom because it was like at the height of COVID. And then like two weeks after that, a publisher had seen me on the Today Show and reached out and said, hey, have you been interested in writing a book or are you interested? And I was like, "Um," first, I thought it was a scam. I was like, well, this is not how this works. My best friend was like, well, the only way you will know is if you email back. I was like, okay, good point. So I emailed back um, and it was not, it wasn't a scam. It was legit. Um, and I did not end up taking that publishing deal, but it did let it, it did send me down the road of getting a, a book agent and then writing a book proposal and shopping book around. So it was kind of the impetus to say, I guess this is the time it's happening now. So you, you've spent a big chunk of the last, what, five, six years writing intensely about body liberation, being a black woman in the wellness space and all of that. 
with COVID and everything, we've gone through a major change, right? People always, well, white people finally discovered racism as a thing. And, (laughs) right. And then there's a big push on the whole body positive, love your body thing. What, for you who've been in this space for so long, what were some of the things that really stood out in the last couple of years? Oh my gosh, this is such a great question. So I think one of the things that you just talked about is like, you know, COVID's happening, then George Floyd's murdered. And then it's like, the wellness industry is like, oh my gosh, racism is real. And I think that was probably like one of the biggest things because I had been talking about like, you know, the intersection of wellness and race and, you know, all these topics well before, you know, George Floyd happened. And people just generally weren't that interested in the conversation or didn't really understand why it was important. And it was like, suddenly everyone's like, oh my gosh, racism is real. And, and as specific to the wellness industry, right? Like, oh my goodness, racism, we, we must address this right now. And it was like an interesting time. I'm like, yeah, yes, it is real. <laughs> I feel like we've been talking, I've been trying to talk about this for a long time. So that was one thing. And then I think too, um, in the last few years, mainstream body positivity has become more commercialized. And, you know, while I think it's important for all of us to be thinking about our bodies in different ways, which is why I wrote the book, obviously I think it's important. I also saw how in so many ways, the body mainstream body positivity space kind of became like watered down and whitewashed. And we really lost, I think, a lot of the original intent of the movement. And so I, I think looking back over the last few years, I think it's so important because we're having more conversations like these that are really necessary. And also there's this caveat of like, there's still so much work to be done. There is. And you point out in the book, and and I see this happen with a number of my guests who've been on, is all of a sudden kind of mainstream people will discover an issue. With you, it's around body positive and race. With others, it's been like trans issues and stuff. When they reach out to educators to say, come to my space, teach me about this, the person they're reaching out to is going through all of this stress and going through the fire at the same time everybody else is, and we're asked to turn it into a teachable moment. Yes. How do you manage that? Because I imagine you get flooded now with requests to please come teach, come talk. Yeah, I think during 2020, post-George Floyd was like the most difficult time because, again, it's like, you know, and I I still think about that time because I don't know what about that moment was so different because George Floyd is not the first person that was murdered, you know, by police. But for whatever, I don't know if it was because we were all in our house for the most part because it was during COVID. I, I don't know. Whatever that became the moment in time when people were like, oh, my gosh, yes, this is a real issue. And and then people were like, yes, we need to address this right now. Like, we don't have a minute to waste. And so, yeah, I was literally so inundated with requests, with with paid work, with requests for, you know, volunteer work. And I think what's really, you know, unfortunate about that is people are running to educators, right? For like, we need assistance right now. This is an emergency for us without recognizing that I am a full human being that's also experiencing the trauma of what's happening as a Black person in the world. And so there was like these very mixed feelings. Like on one hand, I'm like, wow, I'm glad that people are really ready to have this conversation. And obviously I feel equipped to, to lead these conversations. And on the other hand, there's also like frustration anger, hurt, you know, the trauma that you're processing personally, overwhelm, exhaustion, like all of these things that are happening simultaneously. And so it's really difficult. And I think, you know, two years past that date, I think the thing that I find most frustrating, not most frustrating, but somewhat very frustrating, I guess, is that I can see how, you know, 
how much the interest has dropped off than, you know, than it was at the height of, you know, post George Floyd era and just seeing where we are two years later and how the in- the interest is not there as much as it was before. And also just seeing like people who made a lot of promises during that time that did not fulfill those promises. And I think, you know, I'm not surprised because history always repeats itself, but it's still disheartening and disappointing to see that so many people were very interested. And then when the moment passed, they kind of just went back to like business as norm- business as usual. That for sure is frustrating. In in working through that, and now we're, we're two years post, which is which is a short period of time, but it's still enough. Did you see any groups, any, you know, areas where people actually committed to doing the work and making that change? Yeah, I, I don't know if I would say that I see it in like necessarily, if I could put it into like groups of people, but I definitely know, I think I developed relationships with individuals that I feel are very much committed to the work of anti-racism and dismantling white supremacy and that are still doing that. And, and there's for sure, yeah, groups of people, individuals that I know. And I think there are organizations that are still trying to do the work, right? And And I think that's the thing too. It's like when that happened, people were like, so you know, excited in that moment about doing the work of anti-racism. And I think that what people don't realize sometimes is that when we're thinking about the work of dismantling systems of oppression, that work is actually not like fun and exciting work. It's actually really hard and challenging and requires a lot of us. And so I think a lot of people had this like initial like gusto and then burned out when they realized like what that actually means and what it actually takes to live an anti-racist life and then to work towards dismantling white supremacy is like, it's not a small task, right? And so it's actually something that is a lifelong, that requires us to be on a lifelong journey and and requires us to realize that it's not warm and fuzzy work. It's not self-improvement work. It's actually really challenging and will try us in all the most challenging ways. At, At some point when you're doing this type of work and educating, it can become overwhelming because everything feels like, oh, I'm talking about racism and deconstructing the patriarchy and white supremacy every day because it's so connected with everything. But there's no way to like completely disconnect from it. So how do you, in the process of doing all of this and your own work and then reaching out and educating other people, how do you replenish yourself in all of that? Oh my gosh, that's such a great question because it's so true, right? Like you can't talk about anything without talking about dismantling white supremacy. It's in everything. It's connected to everything, right? But I think what's helped me with replenishing myself is number one, um, which I didn't always have in the beginning when I started doing this work more publicly, but trying to have better boundaries, right? And to also, because I think there was a time when I, especially as my platform was starting to grow, people would tag me and DM me about everything that was happening. And I felt like it was my responsibility to address or to speak on all the things or to comment all the things. And I got really burned out. And then I was like, oh, no, you can't do all the things. You can't address all the things. You can't be responsible for all the things. And so once I started to like learn that and say, okay, like I, there's only so much I can do personally, and I have to also take care of myself. That's part of my work. That was like really important turning point for me because I was definitely doing too much at certain points. So I think that's one part. And I think too, like just establishing, like, for example, while I was writing the book, like I felt like me writing this book was my part in contributing to the work. And so I'm like, okay, while I'm doing my thing, writing this book, that means I'm going to be showing up less in other spaces, but that doesn't mean that I'm not still doing the work. This is the way I'm doing it right now. And then also just like taking time to really, not even taking time, 
prioritizing centering my own personal joy. And I think that's so important, you know, to center your joy and to realize that like, although I'm talking about issues like race and white supremacy and all those things, like that is not like um, my identity, right? And that part of liberation, whether it's liberation for Black folks or body liberation is our joy, right? And so making sure that I'm centering that and making time for that. And then just know that it's okay to like disappear from social media for a while. I don't have to be on here all the time doing all the things and then make just taking care of myself is a priority, really. So when do you feel the most joy? Oh, wait, when do I feel the most joy, you said? Oh, what, gosh, what, what, what brings you the most joy? What brings me the most joy? Oh, my gosh, honestly, like things that bring me so much joy is like, I, I feel like I'm really blessed with like a really wonderful friend group and community um, and just like spending time with people that are very nourishing. And I leave those interactions and I feel like so full of love and we, I feel really nourished and we're sharing laughs and just being with people where you feel like you can completely be unmasked, completely be yourself brings me so much joy. Um, I am an avid reader of fiction and nonfiction, but I love a good fiction book. And so honestly, like a Saturday morning, a Sunday morning on the couch, my coffee, reading a good fiction book, that is my life. I love it. <laughs> and then like, and you know, in the summertime, I live in Brooklyn in the summertime, like just going to the park and enjoying the sunshine, listening to music or podcasts, just like just being at peace are the things that really bring me just like so much joy. And I have to say Prospect Park has got to be one of the best parks I've ever, oh I used to live in Brooklyn. Oh, it's such a great park, right? You can just go there with a blanket and lay out. It's like your best life. <laughs> <laughs> it really feels like that when you're there too. It you're does. Like, it, you see that all the buildings up around the edges of it and stuff. It's so wonderful. It's so great. Yes. <laughs> and I love the book because at the end of every chapter, you give questions to think about and ways to commit to the work. And you do a chapter on boundaries, which I don't think it's talked about enough in wellness space and body liberation space, but are so critical. How did setting those boundaries with your family around talking about your body go? Because the, they're the people who tend to see you the most and know you the best. How did that go when you started saying, I'm not okay with you saying this or that, or let's not address it this way? Yes, yeah, so I think this is a two-part answer because with my immediate mm -hmm. family, my immediate family um, really were witness to when I was like really in the depths of diet culture, right? They saw how obsessive my habits were. They saw like the lengths I would go to, to not miss a workout or to not, you know, go over my calorie intake for the day. And I think that actually worried them in a lot of ways, especially when I was in a very thin body and they were like, okay, what are you still doing this? And I'm like, yeah, it's for my health. So I think that when I started to change my habits, my relationship with my body started to gain some weight. I actually, it was never really a conversation with my immediate family. I think they were probably grateful. They're like, oh, you know, they probably felt reassured because I think they were, you know, even when I was in that place, they would make comments, letting me know that they were concerned maybe about how far I was taking it, but they were never, it's never been in my family where people were, are really obtrusive or intrusive about commenting on bodies. But I, I definitely know there's a point where they were like a little worried about me in that regard. So when my body started to change and, and I was gaining weight, that was not really an issue because they were like, oh, okay, she's eating again. <laughs> she's behaving more human-like in their mind. So they were probably pleased with that. My immediate family, on the other hand, people that I don't see as often and not as close to, you know, 
And I think every family has their own dynamics, but especially in a black family and my black family, like people are very comfortable talking about commenting on your body when they see you commenting on the fact that it's changed. Um, I remember, I, not, I remember I went through a divorce and my body had also changed. I remember one of my mom's sisters really well intentioned person, I think, you know, or she, they consider themselves well intentioned. I don't know. They were like, now don't go gaining too much weight because you're gonna have a hard time finding a new husband. Um, and so, you know, I just, I addressed it and was like, oh, well, when I'm, when I'm not looking for a new husband too, if I was, he's going to have to be okay with the way that my body looks because there's nothing wrong with the way that my body looks. And so I think those conversations with, you know, depending on your dynamics are going to look different. And I just, I think I've just continued to reinforce that I don't want to have discussion about my body. That's not something that I'm willing to talk about with anyone. And I think it can be hard though, because some family is going to be really receptive to that. And some family is not going to be receptive to that. And, and, you know, I have a, I had, I used to do a lot of one-on-one coaching and one of my clients had a very strained relationship with her mother, especially around body stuff. Right. And it had set boundaries with her mom lots of times. And it got to the point where she was like, okay, I recognize my mom is probably never going to change because her mom was also making these comments about her own body. Right. So it was, it was not just her body. It was like, you know, she was projecting her own issues as well. And so she got to the point where she was like, I have to accept that my mom is probably never going to change this. And it's unfortunate that is, I'm just going to number one, build myself up when I know that I'm going to go be around my mom. And then also limit the amount of time that I'm planning to be around my mother, right? Not that I don't love her, but I can't put myself in situations for extended periods of time where I know I'm going to feel triggered and or leave feeling bad about myself. And so I think it's learning to manage the expectations and then to recognize who we're dealing with and how is it going to best support us to be in environments with those people. I love the fact that in the the story about your friend who had to set these repeated boundaries and recognizing her mom's not going to change, for so many of us who've started doing this work and have grown up in families that are very vested in image, it can be very hard to watch your family still stay in this, right? And, and, and rooted in diet culture. Yeah. And so setting those boundaries become a form of self love. Like, absolutely. And you know, that's the thing about boundaries too. And my therapist told me this recently and I was like, oh, that was a light bulb moment for me. She's like, because I think sometimes we think of boundaries as like these harsh things. And really when we're setting boundaries with people, especially out of a place of love, it's because I value and love you and I want to stay in community with you. So I'm setting up the parameters so that we can make sure we can still love each other well. Exactly. Exactly. So what was it for you that started to, you know, as somebody who was very involved in the physical industry and, and bodybuilding and diet culture, what was it for you that started to seep into the cracks to break through that you needed to change how you thought about this? I was just miserable. I mean, I just think that, you know, for so long I was like, oh, this, you know, the reason I first joined the gym was to lose weight. Then I had this transformation, you know, that word people like to use. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be so much happier now when I like hit this number on the scale. And then I hit the number on the scale and I was like, oh, I need to lose a few more pounds. This is not exactly what I thought. And then I was like, oh, well, then I need to change this part of my body. And then I need to do this thing to my body. And I was just miserable, miserable, miserable. And then I remember um, I went and like, I couldn't enjoy life. I couldn't, I didn't like to go to restaurants because I wouldn't know their exact macros. I didn't like to go on trips because then I might not be able to exercise. Like it was just exhausting. And I remember, um, I always talk about like my rock bottom moment. I was on a weekend 
trip with my husband at the time and in-laws and it was just a weekend, but I was like so hyper fixated on this trip because I was like, oh my gosh, my eating is going to be all off. And so I like packed all these meals to take with me on the weekend. And we were like at a water park with all of our extended family. And so we took like a break during the you know day to like go eat. And I like was in my car eating like this sad meal that had been sitting there all day in this little cooler, like little six pack travel coolers that were like, I don't even know if they still make those. I'm sure they do. <laughs> and it was just so sad. And I remember I, I told, you know, my partner was like supportive as he could be. And so Everyone mm-hmm. in the restaurant and they were like, why is it, you know, why is it Chrissy coming in? And they're like, she's like, oh, she just brought her own food because she likes to be healthy, which was a lie, right? Like I was not, I, that was not about health. That was me just trying to control my body. And so they were really generous. They asked the restaurant if I could come in with my food. So I did. And I was just sitting there eating this like sad food that had been sitting there all day. And I'm watching everyone around me like order food eat whatever they want. It smells so good. It's fresh. Hasn't been sitting in a cooler all day. And it was at that moment, I was like, wow, I'm going to spend the rest of my life being miserable if I don't change something because this is not living. This is literally, I'm miserable. And food is so quintessential to culture, to connections, to all of that. So, and it takes, there's so much when you break up with diet culture and, you know, to stop counting the calories to stop yes. doing all of those measurements and thoughts. How is your relationship with food now? How has it developed and changed? Oh my gosh, it's so much better. And what you just said is like, like food is such an important part of life, right? Like you, there's so much joy. Talking about moments of joy. I'm like, yeah, like food brings so much joy, right? And I think one of the like diet culture, toxic fitness culture teaches us the, the this um phrase that food is fuel, right? And like, yes, practically speaking, of course, like, yes, but it's so much more than that. It's culture, it's connection, it's experience, it's the way we share our love with one another. And once I broke up with diet culture, and you know, when you break up with diet culture, it's not like an over, you don't flip the switch and all of a sudden you're better, especially when you've been like religiously counting macros for five years, you kind of know what you're eating still, right? So it takes time, it takes time. But now my relationship with food is just so different. And I, and I like, and I, I think back to like experiences that I completely missed out on because I didn't try the food. I didn't eat the things that I really wanted to have. I didn't have the full experiences because I was worried about all these things. And now I, one of my favorite parts about like traveling or like living in Brooklyn, living in New York is like going to restaurants, trying, we have like all the food you could possibly want here. Right. And like having these amazing food experiences and just being able to really enjoy them and being like, wow, that was the best whatever I've had in a long time, I can't wait to come back here and have it again. Right. And it just is so much joy and pleasure in the experience of eating now when I have really broken up a diet culture and repaired that relationship with food. And you also address one of the things, and the, one of the big trends now is intuitive eating. Right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Eat- <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's off limits. Just eat what your body just wants. Eat. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I ha- I've had a hard time about this is somebody who's been bigger bodied for a long time and has a lot of health issues is I've always been told, don't trust your gut. Don't trust your body. Mm. It's not in trying to break up with all of that diet culture and stuff and trust that your body is going to kind of guide you and let you know what you need. How do you come back into your body? Because diet culture demands you divorce yourself from it. 
Absolutely. I I feel like it takes a long time to learn to trust your body again and to trust yourself again, that you know what you need. Your body is really will tell you what it wants and what it desires because you're right. Diet culture tells you that all the answers are with someone else, right? So like, let someone else tell you how to eat. Let someone else tell you how to exercise. Let someone else tell you what's good for your body, what's bad for your body, what foods are off limits. You lose all connection with what does my body desire? What actually feels good? What do I enjoy? How do I feel after I eat certain things? Like you just, it's like that part of you is not even connected anymore. And so I really think when it comes back to like coming back into being present with your body and your intuition and trusting yourself, that just takes time, right? Because it's like when you've lost that trust, it's like developing trust with a person, you know, when you've lost trust with a person, you have to work towards building that relationship again and taking these small steps to learn to build that trust back. And it's the same with ourselves and just really being patient and kind and compassionate to ourselves in the process and recognize that it's it's a journey of coming back to ourselves and to feeling good about, I know what's best for me. I don't need anybody else to tell me the answers about what my body likes and desires and what I want to eat today and what I should eat today, right? And, and in talking about all this, you've mentioned you, you got divorced kind of towards your rock bottom. You got divorced and had to go back out on the dating market. And for any of us who've been divorced, it's, oof, it's a thing. <laughs> It's a thing. It's a thing. It's a thing. <laughs> it's a thing. So how has going back out and dating and getting back in touch with that romantic and intimate side of you post diet culture been? It's a wild ride, honestly. And that's, I think I devote a whole chapter to talking about dating in the book because I think there's a real, it's first off having to go back into the dating world is just, it's just, you know, it's scary on its own. It's, it's scary out there. So I think, especially because as I just closed in the book, I got married really young. And so I spent like all of my adult life with this person. So I really didn't spend a lot of time dating, so to speak. So that was new. I was dating in a body that was, looks different than, you know, it had before. And so I think, you know, the thing about coming to a place of really true peace and liberation and feeling good in your skin and accepting you know, whatever, all the things is that we still live in a world in which other people haven't necessarily done that work. And so it's like, it doesn't matter how great I feel. I still, if I'm dating, I'm still coming in contact with people, which I don't know how they're going to feel or what they're going to think or what they're going to say. And that can be really challenging to navigate. And that can also like trigger previous body image issues when you're thinking, okay, gosh, I'm going to go meet people and, and interact with people in the, in the world. And they may have their own as a lot of us do, their own internalized fat phobia, their own thoughts about what health means and all of these things to navigate can be really, really hard. But I think one thing that's really helped me through the last few years that I've been dating is really feeling so firm and confident about who I am and my own personal values and such that there is, if if you're not online with this is the body I look, this is the body I reside in, and also this body might change, likely will change. I'm not interested in a relationship with you if you're interested in what I look on the outside, because like I can promise you, this is not going to be the same in two years, five years, 10 years. Bodies change. That's what they were designed to do. And they always are going to change. And so if you are not aligned with that, we're not, we're not a match for each other. And I think the other thing that I've really become really clear on that spending time by myself has really helped me get clear on 
is that I enjoy my own company so much now. <laughs> and I, I've cultivated a life that feels really good and really filled with joy. And I am not willing to compromise that for anyone. So if you cannot add joy and if our values don't align, my company myself is so great. I am happy to be by myself until I meet the right person. And I think that the stronger and more deeply in love I fall with myself, the easier it's for me to say, you know what? I'm good. If I can't meet the right person, no problem, because I'm so happy with my life and I'm so happy with who I am. I find too, as you get older, you get more clear on what your values are. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. A lot of this is around diet culture and stuff. When did you start really connecting the racial aspects of it? Um, Because that's a whole nother line to break down. Absolutely. So there's a couple of books that really helped me. I think early on, actually, in my work of trying to work through my body image issues. I read uh, Sonia Renee Taylor's book, The Body is Not an Apology, written by, you know, an amazing Black woman. And that's when I started to really like, oh, interrogate it and think about it. Like, oh, yeah, like we're having different experiences here based on all these other factors, right? And how we feel and exist in the world is impacted by that. I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And then I read Fearing the Black Body by Dr. Sabrina Strings. And she talks about the where fat phobia is, is rooted in racism and how this idea came to be. And I was like, oh, yeah, duh, that makes so much sense. So when I started connecting those dots, it was also like, oh, of course, you know, I'm having, a, of course, all of us are. But even so, yes, of course, I'm having a hard time. And of course, this is like something that I'm working through. And of course, white supremacy is the blame for it because it's the blame for everything, right? Yeah. The, and I can't recommend those two books more highly. I They're yeah. kind of the core of what I, what I work on on this, this show. At the top of the show, we've talked about, you know, the body positive movement and how that's kind of become watered down. You use the term body liberation in the title of your book. So for you, what is body liberation? What does that look like? Yes, I use the term body liberation because the the word liberation means freedom, right? And the ultimate goal is for all of us to feel free in our bodies, but just free to exist in the world, free to, you know, free it's just to understand that truly and honestly, our bodies are the way we look are the least interesting thing about us. Not that they don't have an impact, but they're the least interesting thing about us. Right. And my personal belief system is that literally our bodies are just the vessel that are allowing us to have this human experience. And I truly believe that all of us have very specific magic to share in this world. And it's all, that's going to look different for all of us, but none of us is that dependent on what we look like. Right. And so, and, and I think one of the things about body positivity um, is that it leads us to believe that like one day we're just going to get to this place and we arrive and now we love everything about our bodies. We look in the mirror and everything's great. And like, that's just not true. Right. <laughs> that's just not realistic. And so it's not the idea that one day I'm going to be able to look in the mirror and love everything I see, but to be able to realize that like, regardless of what I see in the mirror, I know that I am inherently worthy because I exist. And that this body, this vessel that I live in is always worthy of respect. It is always worthy of adoration. It is always worthy. It's just always worthy because because of who I am, because I'm existing in this world. So if your body is the least interesting thing about you, what's the most interesting thing? Personally for me? Yeah. Ooh, that's, no one has ever asked me that question. I think the most interesting thing about me is my mind. Yeah. I think I have like a really, you know, I I feel like I have an inquisitive mind and I think that I've always 
even since I was like a kid, I believe my mom would even say this. Like since I was a kid, I've always just been like really not even trying to figure things out in terms of the world, but like I've always been a very uh, independent, but I want to say not even independent. It was like my mom would always say that I came out the womb, like deciding that I knew what I was going to do in this world and that I, she, no matter what I was going to, I was going to do my thing. Um, and I think that's true. And so I think that would be one of the things I consider the most interesting thing about me. So being independent can also be terrifying because it can feel oh, like yeah. you don't have, yeah, that you may not have the the support you need to get through. So what gives you that underlying strength to be outspoken and be independent like that? Right. And actually, that's probably why I was trying to think of another word besides independent, because then I'm like, I don't want to be, a, you know, I don't want to be too independent. Right. There's this thing that, I, you know, not even a thing, it's something that is being I've been talking about and I've been seeing a lot of black women talking about is like this idea of a strong black woman. They're like, no, I don't want that identity for myself. Like, no, thank you. So I kind of think when I was thinking of the independent, I was like, not necessarily independent, but kind of. And I think that it can be really scary. It can be, yeah, it can be all of those things. But I think what gives me the courage to keep doing the things that I do and to kind of even make choices I've made over the last couple of years, you know, like leaving my ex, even though he was a wonderful person, quitting my corporate job, moving to New York, just doing all these things differently and kind of living according, living my own path, even though it was not what other people understood is, you know, the words of Audrey Lord, which I'm going to badly paraphrase her quote. But when she talks about, I'm not even going to try to paraphrase the quote. I'm going to explain what she says because I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to mess it up too bad. But when I think of the work that I do, when I think of it being in service to other people, it becomes less important if I'm afraid or not to do the thing I'm doing. And I think that's always guided me in the decisions that I was making. I've always believed that I was going to do something that was going to be important. And even though it's scary and I don't necessarily understand what the end path is or the end goal is, I believe so much in what I'm doing that I'm going to do it afraid. And I trust myself enough. We're talking about the self-trust, right? And and I think that my self-trust grew after body liberation because I was like, okay, I can trust myself that no matter what path I go on, I can figure it out. It's going to be okay. I'm going to make it through. And so how is that your on the the verge of the book being released into the world. Yes. How are you feeling about that? <laughs> oh my gosh, all the feelings. It's an emotional roller coaster. I'm like so excited, right? Like I'm I personally feel like I wrote a great book and I keep trying to remind myself that no matter what the people say, I feel good about what I wrote and that's the most important thing. But yeah, there's all the feels that come with it, like excitement, there's a little nervous energy, a little nervous tension, um, you know, because there's always going to be naysayers. We we know this, right? There are going to be people that think the book is a amazing. And there's some people who have not so great things to say about it. And so my work personally is to stay grounded in the fact that I believe I wrote a book that's really good and that's going to help people. And that's the most important part. But there's like, yeah, all those emotions, all these feelings, but overall, just like real excitement and a sense of accomplishment that I did this. And, and remembering that writing the book is the thing, right? No matter what happens after the chips fall where they fall, but I'm just really happy about it. I'm excited. And it is, it's a fantastic book. I, I cannot recommend it more highly. Like, well, thank um, you. <laughs> yeah. No, I gave it to, to my mom and my sister. And then I called, we do a family call with my partner's side. And I'm like, all y'all got to go buy this. This is fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. <laughs> uh, 
Because I, I do. I, I think it's an absolutely fantastic book. You talk about the idea of the, the strong Black woman, and that gets represented in media a lot. Like, I'm strong independent. Where do you find good representation of Black women in the media? Ooh. I mean, I have people that I... I think are just like icons in my own personal, in my own eyes. Um, and I, I'm glad you brought this up because I think that the narrative of, of a strong black woman is something that we are starting to work and push against. Right. Cause that doesn't, that is not our story. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also so much of our resilience is because we've had no choice, right. Not because that's like what yeah. we've wanted to do. Um, but when I think about people that I personally just like really, feel that I look up to um, and or that I feel are just like iconic, I guess I would say. I mean, obviously, I, I'm a the work of Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde has like informed me in so many ways. I can't even talk about them, the both of their works enough. And then when I think of people just like an everyday life now that I'm like, wow, um, one of the people that always comes to mind is Tracy Ellis Ross. And I say that because I feel like she's just so, I'm obviously haven't met her. So this is what I'm seeing through media, but I've seen interviews and she just, and where she talks about just like not settling in life and especially as it pertains to relationships. And I think that has really um, been something that I really resonated with in important ways. I am writing this book with Penguin Random House, but a, an imprint called Tiny Reparations, which is run by Phoebe Robinson, two dope queens or dope queen thieves. And just like the way that she has championed for my book and for my work has been really inspiring for me and also helped me think about how I want to be able to do that for other people as well. And then of course, like Michelle Obama, like, you know, what, what could, what else do we need to say besides Michelle Obama, right? <laughs> I don't even, that needs no other yeah. words. <laughs> yeah. So, talking your book about one of the ways to help manage you know, your feelings about your body, about diet culture, and everything is to change who you follow in the media. Mm, yes. And you, you've you've given some like TV Robinson and Tracy Ellis Ross have some great social media going on. Who else do you follow to get inspired and to feel good about yourself? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think social media is so important because it really is like, I spend a lot, I spend far more time on social media than I care to admit to. But I, when I'm talking about like who I'm following on like on my page, I love following other creators that are doing similar content. Tiffany Ema is a black woman. She does great content related to body stuff as well. So Tiffany Ema, Jamie Karoma's, uh, I might be saying her last name, wrong, but she does amazing body, I don't know if she calls it body positive, but whatever, body type stuff. And she has like really great content. And I also just love seeing people with different bodies doing different things. Um, Decolonizing Fitness, Ilya Parker, I love following them. Their work has been so amazing for myself and so many people. Yeah, there's just so many people. I'm trying to think that I've just been so honored to know through this space. And for all the things that I could say that are the negatives of social media, and I think there are a lot, there are also so many positives because I've really been able to connect with people doing amazing work that really inspire me and that I also feel like are working to shift the narrative as well. That is so meaningful. Yeah. So with the the book coming out and all the feels around it, how would you like to see it manifest when it comes out? What, what, also, if you could have it, your fantasy yeah. play out. <laughs> 
<laughs> Where would you like to see this in a year or two once people see the book and receive it and all of that? Wow, these are wonderful questions. You know what? When I started writing the book, I remember I was excited to be able to write a book, but I knew that for me, I, I didn't want to write a book just to be able to say I wrote a book, right? I wanted to write a book that I feel like was really going to help shift the narrative. And I remember saying, this is a very lofty thing, but I remember saying that I want the message of body liberation to reach people all across the entire globe because you know, I truly, truly believe that when we set ourselves free and we come to this place of liberation, it really sets us free to do so many other incredible things in the world. And I know how much has changed for me, like, and, and that I wouldn't even be doing the things I'm doing now if I was still stuck in the muck and the mire of diet culture. And I just see, and I saw it in so many clients that I worked with. And I just know that freedom really, liberation really, it really sets us free in all these areas of our lives. And I so deeply desire that for everyone. I love that grateful for the book. I, I, in all honesty, this so much of it resonated. Like I saw my entire childhood like play out yeah. as you're describing all of the early stuff with diet culture. It like is painful because it's so present for me. No, like, and I, I don't want to, I, and I, it makes me happy to hear that you saw yourself seen like, represented in this book, because that's also what I truly want. I want anybody who picks up this book to be able to see themselves in the book. And although our experiences are all a little bit different, we have our own little unique experiences that we bring to the table. I hope that everyone sees, feels really seen when they read the book. It is. It's wonderful. So if people want to follow you, if they want to find you, plug the book, plug all the things. Absolutely. So you can follow me online on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at I am Chrissy King. Website is ChrissyKing.com. Of course, the book is available for pre-order now. It's ChrissyKing.com backslash book or anywhere books are available for sale. And then of course, I have a newsletter. So you can sign up and uh, on my website, join my newsletter to keep in touch with me. I usually send out weekly uh, newsletters there. So yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show. We will have all of those links up on our website. And everybody, check out the book. Check out her work. It, you're a phenomenal follow. You're a phenomenal newsletter. I, I love your stuff. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. This was so special. Hi, this is your host, Auntie Vice. Are you curious of finding other podcasts with a similar sense of humor and topic? You can check out To All the Men I've Tolerated Before, which is one of the most awesome titles out there for a podcast. It covers issues of misogyny, everyday misogyny, dating, period stigma, and all the fun things the rest of us have to deal with when interacting with men. Set your players to check out for all the men I tolerated before. And thanks for listening to Fat Chicks on Top. And now, a moment of gratitude. Oh my gosh. Well, for one, I'm grateful to have this conversation with you. This has been, uh, honestly, I mean that seriously. Like I was telling you before we started, I did three interviews today and I have loved these questions so much. So like, thank you so much for like, putting so much thought into these questions. Um, and then what am I grateful for? Um, honestly, I'm just grateful to have this opportunity. I'm, I'm grateful to be able to share my work with the world in a way that feels really meaningful to me personally. I'm grateful to all the people that have been so, so supportive of me along the way. I'm super grateful to my publisher. I, I know, you know, 
publishing is also the wild, wild west. And so, and I didn't know much about it before I started this book, but they have been so supportive and just like so wonderful to work with. And I just feel like I have like really great community and really great people around me and my support systems are amazing and it makes such a difference. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.